One of the really promising directions current AI systems point to is the possibility of truly immersive, responsive experiences. A combination of advances in voice transcription, language modeling, and 3D rendering open up a broad range of possibilities. My guest today, Russ Moshmeyer, has been exploring how technologies like these can create immersive experience and impact culture for many years. We covered a wide range of his work, from a hacked Kinect sensor he built that was covered in the New York Times, to product design work at Facebook, founding Primer, and his current work at Shopify, where he's been helping define AI's role in shopping and leading efforts in spatial commerce. This is the Gradient Podcast, and I'm your host, Daniel Bashir. If you're listening to this and you're not subscribed to The Gradient in some way, I think you should go fix that. You can subscribe to the podcast on your usual podcast player to make sure you get episodes when I release them every week. And if you want to get the rest of what we put out on The Gradient, that means this podcast, our newsletter, and articles from our online magazine, then you can subscribe to us through Substack. And finally, if you like what we're doing, it would really mean a lot to all of us if you consider sharing this or whatever else you like on The Gradient. We're a pretty small team, this podcast is a one-man effort, and the entire Gradient publication is run by a very small group of dedicated volunteers. So whenever you do share our things around, when you leave comments for us, when you give us feedback, we all really, really appreciate it. But now, without further ado, Russ Moshmeyer. Russ, you've been doing a lot of really exciting work around AI and spatial commerce at Shopify. And I want to start a while before this. When you were at the School of Visual Arts in New York, you built a hacked Kinect sensor to control music through physical gestures. And I kind of want to understand what is the path that led you to getting interested in doing something like that? and how that kind of flew into your your career ambitions and, and what you're doing now. Yeah, totally. Well, I mean, I just want to start out by saying thank you so much for for having me on, Daniel. I'm, I'm obviously super excited to chat about everything that we're uh, doing at Shopify right now. But uh, but yeah, no, I mean, um, my background actually isn't in uh, tech or engineering um, or, or even originally in product or interaction design. My background was in fine art and music. Um, so I, I was an art major at NYU. Um, and then, uh, when I left college, uh, uh, much to my parents' chagrin, went into music instead of anything more profitable than art, um, at a time when the music industry was just totally collapsing because of things like LimeWire and Napster. And, uh, and so, uh, my early education is in all kinds of creative cultural fields, including, you know, specifically music. And so, you know, I was, uh, I was in this band, we weren't making any money, but I had to eat food. I lived in New York. It's an expensive place. And so on the side, I started learning how to do web design. Um, and uh, and that eventually led me to a much deeper love of, uh, of design uh, and graphic design um, and web technologies and what, you know, what kinds of new businesses and tools can be built on the open web. And, uh, and eventually that led me to a program at SVA called the Interaction Design Program. Um, it was the first year the program ever ran. So we were the kind of inaugural class. Um, it felt like a really special time to be a part of this really new field. The iPhone was, you know, pretty new still at this time. The App Store was just kind of 
beginning to explode with the possibilities that you know these new very powerful devices could could bring and enable. And so, um, and so I went back to grad school after spending a few years out, you know, working and doing web design freelance and at agencies and studios and, uh, and, and went back to kind of the fundamentals of, of interaction design, human computer interaction. And this project that you're talking about was actually my, my thesis project, uh, at SVA. Um, and it was one where I was trying to bring together everything that, um, that I had learned and loved about my time, uh, at the interaction design program, the, the master's program there and um and my love of music and, and creativity and uh and it was this time when microsoft had just released uh the connect um it was this new crazy you know camera sensing 3d depth sensing device that could track a human's you know sort of skeletal frame um and that that was an, an incredibly powerful new input for for computers um, and my fascination has always been around uh, how does technology both enable uh, new kinds of culture and also just like ultimately change and impact our culture um, and, and what we make and how we make it and how we share it and how we talk about it? And, and so for me, this technology was a really interesting one to think about in the context of music and what could full body tracking enable for a, a musically trained person to interact with music live on stage. Uh, and the, the real exciting thesis there was, um, how can a musician control the feel of a piece of music without changing any of the notes uh, through live gesture? How can they perform the emotion of a piece without having to think about the note structure uh, of what they're performing? And so that was, uh, that was what the Connect was ultimately kind of unlocking um, in that project was this sort of direct conversation between the musician, you know, moving on stage, but not touching an instrument um, and sort of affecting the emotional feel of the music in front of them. That's really fascinating. And I, I actually want to rest for a little bit on that because it seems like what you're, you're looking for here, you talked about technology enabling new culture, and then there's a specific way in which you're offering people a new sort of way to input into a computer and to direct the the feeling of music, which is really hard. And I think that the New York Times article that was written about your project made the correct observation that traditional instruments are really, really complex. And as somebody who spent a lot of time playing violin, I think that also like the how do you how do you get the right sound and how do you get the right emotion out of the same notes that you're playing is a really difficult problem. And I can see a bunch of guitars behind you. So I think you probably have a lot of a lot of experience with this as well. So I'm kind of wondering how this idea of like, let's let's control the feeling, let's also increase maybe the accessibility or, or somehow kind of make this a bit more of an embodied experience. I'm wondering if you at the time or maybe even now had a kind of cohesive vision of how does this fit into what music could potentially look like if you had to think about that. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a super fascinating question and, and one I only sort of began to tease apart kind of with the thesis project. But I think what we're experiencing now with advances in AI music generation is sort of continuing on this sort of thread of how do we increase accessibility to these incredible emotive creative experiences for people um, without uh, while while decreasing sort of the cost of entry, how hard it is to learn an instrument or a computer or a whatever device might enable that kind of interaction. And I think what I've always loved about human-computer interaction and sort of the, the, the through line 
is how do we make computers or the tools that we build more and more responsive and accepting of natural human inputs as possible? Um, and how do we take sort of the natural um, instincts of human beings and how they move and how they communicate, whether that's through body language or through, or through actual language, um, and, and use those as inputs to drive ever more powerful creative machines? Um, and, and that's actually a, a direct connection um, to, to what I'm doing today at Shopify, um, working with AI and these new technologies and helping to, uh, to uh, make it easier uh, and more accessible for entrepreneurs everywhere to leverage these tools to do uh, amazingly creative things. How do you feel about the shift between something that's a little bit more embodied versus natural language as an input? And I guess what I mean there is, you referenced the capabilities that generative AI is offering for us to create music, to create pictures that does offer us this ability to do something that creates an output that has this kind of emotive quality to it. But it feels not quite the same as when you are having the embodied experience of playing an instrument or in the case of the Connect sensor you build or what you're doing now at Shopify. It's still it's still embodied. Maybe you're not dealing with as fine-grained motor skills as when you're playing the guitar, but you're still doing something with your body. And to me, that's always felt very important to the experience of kind of using our running example, playing music. And so I'm wondering how you think about all of this coming together when it comes to people's ability to, to really kind of feel what it is they're creating, what they're doing, versus the, I'm just going to type stuff into a keyboard and see what comes out on the other end. Yeah. I think creativity is all about velocity. And I think what trained musicians are able to do is move with incredible velocity using that instrument that they know, whether it's a saxophone, a guitar, a piano, their own voice, right? To move very quickly through an option space, feel out all of those possibilities, visualize them, hear them, whatever the medium might be, and make smart personal decisions about what they love, right? What's resonating for them. And I think um, that's what musicians, professional ones, who have spent years playing instruments to be virtuosic up and down the fret or the keyboard, um, that's what they have access to, is that velocity. And I think what's really amazing about these new AI tools is that they're bringing that velocity to more people. Um, because you can just write a text prompt and generate a bunch of images and then think about those images and whether they're right or not, and then try something else and get something new. And that way you can find that same kind of velocity that, you know, maybe someone sketching those ideas might have. Um, and so I think that's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Let's begin bridging a little bit towards your work at Shopify and, and kind of the intermediate stage I want to talk about is some of the work you did at Facebook and also you founded Primer. You did a lot of work on, on search queries, group recommendations. What I'd love to understand a little bit better is what it looks like to work on these sorts of projects from a product design perspective? Yeah, um, uh, those were some fascinating projects. You know, I spent uh, about six and a half, almost seven years uh, at Facebook working on various things, but um, the majority of my time was spent leading 
uh, and building the design team for search at Facebook. And um, I was one of the early designers on graph search, which was an experiment in, in search that Facebook did. Um, eventually, we worked uh, that in as a, a feature of a larger kind of keyword search approach um, that we moved to in time, but um, also spent time on Facebook profile and, and very early on uh, spent time uh, building up some of the groups ecosystem at Facebook, specifically groups for universities. Um, and that's where some of the patents that you you sort of spoke of came from. Um, in my experience, like designing these things, uh, you know, Facebook was already um, a massive platform um, when I arrived to help work on some of these projects in 2011. Um, groups was one of the first things I dove in on and, and we were just trying to figure out how to help um, college students at this point, like we were still really focused on college students, figure out how to make and find the right groups at their schools to create a really healthy ecosystem on every campus. You know, um, when Facebook started, uh, every college campus had its own siloed Facebook. Um, not many people remember this, uh, this phase. Um, and then we, uh, we connected all the silos into one big Facebook, but you were still in kind of one big group for your school. Um, there were special privileges and things you could do with people who were at your school too. But then as each of those schools got even huge in the amount of people participating in that community within Facebook, we needed, you know, there needed to be a way for them to find sort of smaller homes within that, that much bigger community college space. And so um, we started building um, tools to help people, you know, find, create, um, and begin to manage, you know, groups for their intramurals, their dorms, their classes, you know, whatever that might be. Um, and uh, and what you learn when you kind of build and design products uh, at this kind of scale um, is that uh, you you have to make very clear hypotheses about um, what you uh, what you believe <laughs> um, this group kind of really needs, and that can come obviously through user interviews and. Th through the data that you already have. Um, but you're making some clear hypotheses about, hey, um, here's what's needed in this space, or here's what's keeping people from creating or joining these groups at the moment. Um, and you test things incredibly fast. And I think that's, uh, you know, to come back to our conversation earlier, the velocity is really what matters in these situations. And so being able to um, very quickly work with uh, my engineer who is sitting right next to me, design something in an hour, pass it to him. He builds it in the next couple of hours. It's production ready by, you know, 3 p.m. that day. We push it live. Within a day or two, we're starting to get data back over whether that had any impact on, you know, what we hoped to have impact on. Um, and then we're able to make smarter decisions about what we try next based on what we learn. Uh, and so I think, you know, in all creative exercises, whether you're building software or whether you're trying to create a great image or whether you're trying to create a great piece of music, um, velocity is really what matters. And I think that's what that's what Facebook uh, and, and Shopify, honestly, like really nail. Can you give me a little bit more detail on the kind of role you're playing as the product designer in this whole process? You talked about, I have this idea for, for what I want this all to look like. I kind of hand it off to an engineer to implement. What are, what are the kind of key decisions you're making in that process and how do you think about them? Yeah. Um, you know, at, at this level, uh, you're thinking about, uh, you've, you've defined a, a kind of user that you're kind of thinking about, hey, here's their mindset, here's what they're trying to accomplish. Um, and then you're kind of looking at the tool that you're building for them and thinking, 
if I was this person and I was, I had this mindset, like what, what on this page jumps out to me? Where would I go? What would I click? What is the, what do the labels suggest each of these functions might bring to me or, or unlock if I go a level deeper there? Um, and so you're just really thinking through the interface and trying to create a visual hierarchy that speaks to whatever mindset that user is arriving with, right? If they're looking for a certain keyword and you think that's the keyword that's like the most prominent thing they're going to be searching for on the page, make that really big somewhere. Make it really easy for them to find, right? It's it's that kind of fundamental stuff just over and over and making sure that the sequence and each step is discrete and makes sense and sort of leads to the fuller uh, fuller action in the end. But, you know, it's it's relatively straightforward storytelling and thinking through like, all right, at this step, what's my mindset? What am I trying to accomplish? What are the tools I might need in this moment? And trying to make sure that all of those affordances are taken care of for the person visiting. So maybe bridging us to Shopify a little bit, what I think we can get into here is broadly talking a bit about how AI kind of manifests in the retail and entrepreneurial landscape. And this is taking us a little bit beyond, of course, what you were doing at Facebook, you're more focused on at the beginning college students, and this evolves to pretty much anybody using Facebook finding groups where AI is still kind of involved to some extent. But could you talk a little bit about the the broad picture of what AI is doing in this landscape right now? I think AI is doing a couple of things. You know, I think um, LLMs are incredibly powerful new interface tools. And I think a lot of people look at LLMs and see them as a new search engine. But I think we've seen pretty clearly that uh, these interfaces, LLMs, are, are fantastic for taking in human language and turning it into a computer understandable intent. And to me, that means that LLMs are largely interface, right? Unless they're connected to deeper systems of information, knowledge bases, um, functions, right? That, that are uh, more for traditional computing to carry out, et cetera. Um, but in that phase, right, the agent space, then they become incredibly, incredibly powerful. Um, and, and we're obviously excited about that here at Shopify too. Um, so that that's a huge one is sort of the, the agent space. Um, not just LLMs, but LLMs connected to smarter, accessible systems of both traditional computing and uh, and smart data. Um, the second thing that I think AI is just really unlocking is, is accelerated creativity for more people um, in so many different areas. And we've obviously talked about this already and touched on it, but, um, but it is such a, a powerful accelerant for the average person who has an idea to begin to um, create some materiality around that idea, whether it's having a little sketch of how that song might sound or, or turning their beatbox into a microphone, into an actual drum beat they could you know, pour it into a song, um, or whether it's you know, generating um, some art direction for a photo shoot that they wanna actually do in, in the real world, um, or for a film that they wanna shoot. Uh, the the power of these tools to give people who didn't have some of these very technical, long-studied skills the ability to begin to generate and realize some of these pent-up ideas um, that I think so many of us have is, uh, is a, I think, a wonderful thing for the world. Taking that forward then a little bit, a lot of what Shopify is trying to do with these technologies is enable, well, shops, people who are selling things, entrepreneurs to to do their work a little bit better. And from a creative perspective, what you said kind of immediately implies a couple of things. 
the creativity aspect, you can think about ways in which people might be able to mock up products, for instance, see what their ideas might actually look like when they come about without having to put in too much work necessarily to to begin iterating on that design. And we talked about velocity earlier, and this also enables the entrepreneur, the person trying to sell things to really iterate much faster than they could otherwise. Could you talk a little bit about how this is looking uniquely at, at Shopify and what you're trying to enable people to do? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, you know, as we said earlier, AI is unlocking a, a lot for everybody, and and we think it's going to make entrepreneurship more accessible for everybody. Um, there's so many creative tasks, administrative tasks, questions to be answered um, about how to build a business or how to run a business or how to improve a business, and we think AI can accelerate all of these areas, right? And so. Our goal is to give every entrepreneur, every business owner access to AI so that they can drive more efficiency in their business, you know, whether that's managing their administrative tasks uh, or supporting business operations or accelerating you know, their creativity um, in their brand uh, or in their storefront or whatever it might be. And actually, in uh, in just a couple of days, on January 31st, we're unveiling over 100-plus product updates that are going to make our foundations here even stronger, uh, including a lot of updates uh, to our AI offerings uh, with Shopify Magic. Yeah, this is this is really exciting. And, and maybe putting some broader context around this, Shopify has already begun to launch some AI features and... The space for AI commerce tools seems to be something that a lot of people are paying attention to. One article that sort of covered your work pointed out that merchants have really, especially in this 2023-2024 holiday season, started to use AI in, in pretty large numbers. And this looks for looks like doing things that involve maybe making connections with customers or managing their inventory, predicting trends. Consumers are using AI on their side to discover products and businesses themselves. But among some of the things that are being introduced now, I think that a lot of what I just spoke about is a pretty natural extension of the type of automation people are already thinking of and would want to do. But what what directions most excite you about the opportunities that are being opened up right now? Yeah, I mean, if uh, if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of get into some of the vision, uh, you know, that we think about here and sort of why the road in general kind of excites us. Um, you know, Shopify is at, at heart uh, a technology company, but one firmly rooted in, in commerce and sort of thinking about how do you always evolve and improve the state of commerce and make it better for everybody. Um, that means we also have to be a bit of a historian too and kind of look back at like how has, you know, how has commerce been improved? And, and a lot of the times the accelerant to new phases of commerce uh, it is technology. Um, if you think back to um, a world of kind of mom and pop stores, Main Street America, um, and Main Street retail, you know, then you have the advent of uh, uh, of mass media and how that completely changed how people look at and shop for brands. Um, it created, you know, obviously like mega brands and big box stores. Um, as uh, as mass media continued to evolve, we get to the age of the internet. And I think what the internet unlocked was sort of this move from, uh, from mass retail 
to niche retail, right? Finding and targeting people um, and being able to speak to their needs and build products for them in ever smaller groups, right? Because of the spread and accessibility the internet affords everybody. Um, and I think what gets us really excited about the advent of AI in this future is that we're continuing sort of that trend where I think this next phase is going to unlock a lot more personalized experiences and make that really the norm. I mean, I, we talked a lot about personalized commerce in the age of the internet and, and mobile internet. Um, but I think really that was just smaller and smaller niches. I think AI is going to really unlock true personalized commerce experiences, um, much the same experience we might have had way back in the day at that main street store where the store owner knew us. And every time we walked through the door, they'd say, you know, hey, Russ, hey, you know, you know, I remember we had that conversation last time you were in about this. We actually just got this new stock. And I think you're going to like this even more because of that thing you were dealing with. Right. So I think those kinds of relationships are going to be much more viable in this future where um, we both have uh, uh, the ability to process, analyze and, and understand um, user interaction and intent in real time um, and also be able to support them in, in what they're going after. So I'm really excited about things like our, our search, uh, storefront search improvements. I'm obviously excited about, uh, you know, sort of media creation um, and storefront building um, and, and that being ever more personalized for, uh, for shoppers into the future. So I think that's the road that we get really, really excited about. It would be great if you could talk a little bit more in detail about what you're hoping this personalized experience looks like. I think that one thing Shopify is probably paying attention to is the frustration a lot of people who might shop online have with the paradox of choice that kind of now confronts us when we're doing just about anything where the options available are so vast. And, and there's two sides to this. One is that expanding availability means that more niches can be served. But for the average person who isn't already precisely sure what they want, it's really, really hard to get to that right niche for them. So, so how do you help people get there? Totally. Yeah, I mean, I think things like our, um, our storefront improvements uh, that enable kind of more semantic searching are one great example of this. Um, the example I love to use is like, you know, if you went to a search engine and you search for a uh, black dress, you know, it's not that hard for the search engine to string match all the items in its inventory that mention black and dress and return you those things. Um, if I search for a little black dress, um, that's actually got a little bit more sort of semantic context and knowledge. it has a cultural meaning, right? There's a subset of black dresses that actually make sense to return for a query like that. Um, and even if I search for something like LBD, which would be a common acronym for little black dress, a string match search engine, a really basic search engine just can't return any. It doesn't understand that LBD means little black dress and what that means culturally and what to return for that. But with these AI improvements for semantic search that we've introduced, um, you know, now you can add just LBD to your search term, hit enter, and it knows to search for little black dresses and what those look like and how to return those to you. And that's an, an incredible kind of like, it's a subtle but very powerful addition to search that actually makes search not just string match relevant, but like culturally relevant. And so I think, I think that's one really powerful thing. But, you know, kind of going back to what I was saying uh, earlier about kind of this future where, um, you know, back in the day, you had this incredible personalized experience where you had a friendly face behind the counter. 
Um, they would have personalized recommendations for you because you've had conversations. They're human. They remember those things. And we can have that relationship together. Um, I think online stores are going to follow suit, right? Giving us that feeling of that relationship. They're going to remember what we came and searched for last time, offer us smart recommendations or updates on inventory we may have shopped or thought about buying before. I mean, imagine you go to a retailer, right? And they show you images, right, of how you would look in the new line and guide you through the elements that actually kind of match uh, maybe your exercise regimen um, or, or whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, and each visit can be totally tailored to whoever we are, right? Creating a powerful and really like personalized experience. Um, and I think it's like an incredible opportunity that Shopify is just at a place right now where we're able to connect shoppers with merchants in this way and, and potentially unlock more of these personalized, uh, deeper shopping experiences. Yeah. The eventual vision of something like I could potentially go try on different clothes and do this all virtually, lowering the barrier to entry on my side and being able to see, does this fit with my build is really exciting. And it seems like we're on that path when it comes to the research side. There's a lot of work in the AI sphere being done on 3D modeling and meshes of this sort, but it's still a, a pretty hard problem. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more in detail about where we are today on track to that vision and what that gap looks like to you. Yeah, uh, I think 2024 is going to be a really big year uh, for image generation. Um, I think we've been watching demos for the last, let's say, year and a half you know, very closely. Um, we've been playing a lot in this space uh, and thinking about how it's going to impact how media is created, no matter who you are, but we think about merchants specifically. And I think what we've seen is that the quality from the first demos that really turned people's heads has gone from, oh, that almost looks like that thing to, whoa, that looks like an incredibly photorealistic image of that thing. Um, and I can't, I can maybe barely, but sometimes not tell the difference between this and a real photo. Um, obviously, that last sliver of can barely tell will, will vanish in a flash here in a moment. Um, so, you know, these, these models will continue to improve at a, at a pretty breakneck pace. And that's like one step of it, like, right, like, can you um, ask for an image and get a, a pretty amazing version of that image, no matter what it might be? Um, but within commerce, um, the challenge is not just, you can't just have any image of any product. It's got to be your product, right? And so what are the pieces, what are the missing pieces um, that need to come into play to make it possible for a merchant to uh, recreate their product faithfully in any media they generate? And so that's a central question, right? We keep coming back to and studying and looking at various approaches to and we launched back in the summer a Hugging Face space uh, that became actually like the number one space of the week for uh, during ICCV, which is really exciting because Hugging Face is a you know, Parisian company, IC ICCV is in Paris. It was just like a great, like awesome moment um, to, to sort of be showing up. Um, but uh, we released a Hugging Face space that did, uh, you know, sort of what we call magic background replacement, um, where you bring a product photo right, of your product, um, but it could be on your kitchen counter or a studio shot you had made like three years ago, or, you know, it could be any any photo of your product. Um, and we built a system that will segment uh, that, the foreground from the background, sort of separate your product out, protect those pixels, and then generate a completely new background 
uh, around that object. So you can take that existing image asset you have, um, maintain and safeguard your product uh, within that image, but otherwise create a new reality around it so you can reuse it for narrative storytelling on social media or to create a promotion in email um, or to sort of dress up your storefront. Um, and, uh, and that proved incredibly popular and, and exciting. Um, and so uh, we're very excited um, to be announcing and releasing Magic Media Gen uh, at this upcoming uh, winter edition. I think that's actually a great segue to talk a little bit more specifically about your group that has been working a lot on really interesting spatial commerce products, projects. Maybe just as a place to start, I think that what you just talked about is kind of an example of this, but it would be great to introduce broadly the idea of spatial commerce, what history there is to it, what people have sort of worked on in that area. Yeah, actually Shopify is kind of a pioneer in spatial commerce. Um, ever since the first, uh, you know, the first Oculus headsets came out uh, and uh, mobile AR kit, uh, uh, Apple's sort of AR kit uh, for, for mobile AR came out, um, we have been experimenting and playing, uh, you know, with the possibilities uh, at the intersection between spatial computing and commerce. Um, and uh, early on, um, it was folks like Daniel Beauchamp and uh uh, as well as others here internally who really led the charge on that. And um, actually just the other day, Daniel shared a, a, an amazing, um, just fun demo, uh, as is his way, um, of him vacuuming uh, his house with a, a sort of like video game-like uh, aesthetic to, I saw um, this, to make yeah. sure he's covering all the ground. Yeah, exactly. Um, very fun stuff. But, you know, he, he's been engaging in, in that kind of playful exploration, um, both broadly, but specifically within commerce here at Shopify too, um, for many, many years um, and inspired a lot of the early product work that Shopify has really done here to lay foundations for the spatial commerce future. So for example, today, if you're a merchant and you have a 3D model of your product, right? You can take that model and drop it into the same media uh, um, media section of your product details page as you drop your images for your product, and we will process uh, and optimize that model. Let's say it's a 300 megabyte file, which is going to be hard to send over the web to your storefront. Um, we'll optimize that for you and bring it down to just a, a few megabytes, something between three and five, let's say. Um, so it's much more performant to send with minimal degradation, um, and it'll just integrate directly into your storefront. We have a 3D viewer on all of our uh, core themes, um, as well as AR capability to, uh, to do view in your room um, AR try-on uh, with AR Quick Look. Uh, and so we've been kind of supporting a lot of the foundations here for years, and we're super excited about what's coming, of course, with um, improved headsets, both uh, on the Quest side, um, Apple's Vision Pro, we've been playing with a lot over the last uh, year as the you know, early dev kits, uh, not dev kits, but rather um, early SDKs have been released. Um, and we were excited to kind of be able to come and get an early preview of the Vision Pro as well and begin to get the wheels turning about how we're thinking um, these devices might best be used for shopping experiences and merchant tools, et cetera. I notice a lot of, and this is probably more tied to the current state of these products, but a decent amount of skepticism around things like the Vision Pro, notably that it's very heavy. Somebody I know who works at Apple said that he has a hard time wearing it because of the weight. And of course, I think these are all things that over time, people are going to figure out and probably improve among many different dimensions. But 
is is part of your thesis here that these products are going to become a lot more widespread and when people are doing things like shopping they will be spending a lot of the time they do that in situations like AR yeah, it's definitely very early days here still, you know, even with Apple coming out with a device um, you know, that seems to have sold well by early kind of estimates, however those estimates are configured. Um, uh, so it's, but it's still very early days. Like I, I think of the Vision Pro, um, this first generation unit as kind of the dev kit. Um, it is the expensive headset. They don't really expect to be mass market. Um, but is at a price point that most people who you know build software professionally and, and hope to play a role in the next major platform to come, um, you know they can certainly afford to buy this kit, begin to build and think about software for it, um, so that as the you know technology both improves, um, but as more importantly the price and weight, as you point out, comes down, um, it will become I think a lot more common um, to see. Uh, these things in people's homes and, and on their desks. Um, I think one of the sleeper hits um, for these headsets, once they are comfortable to wear for a long time and have a long battery life, is productivity. Um, you know, we obviously think about the shopping experiences, and we even released a few sort of demo concept videos of what different shopping experiences might look like in the Vision Pro, uh, you know, when it when it's released, and um, and those are things we're excited to obviously continue to play around with and build out. Um, but the uh, the space where I think it may actually have the most immediate impact is on sort of general productivity, um, and uh, I think people underestimate the um, uh, the gains from being able to have infinite screens <laughs> around you um, and to be able to interact with all of those things at the same time. I think we'll, we'll learn kind of what that means over the next year as obviously the developer community comes to this device and begins to experiment and, and kind of show us what's, what's now possible in this new three-dimensional modality. It would be great to talk about some specific examples of this. On a website for your group spatial commerce projects, you have a lot of different examples. One that kind of sticks out to me, similar to what you just said, is this MR and AI for immersive product search. And you're trying to answer this question of, again, we've approached this a few times, what would online shopping look like in a spatial internet? And what would looking at these options look like in virtual reality? So could you talk a little bit about that project in particular and what you were trying to do with it? Yeah. Um, so to give people some context, kind of listening at home or watching at home, um, you can, uh, we'll, we'll try to find a way to drop you the link, but you can visit um, a repo of our spatial commerce projects uh, actually on the Shopify GitHub repo. It's just like a public, you know, sort of web page um, that we put up there about our work. Um, and we share a lot about each project and sort of how it was conceived and uh, and also how we built it. Uh, so there's a lot of great tidbits in there too. But this particular project, uh, the video shows um, sort of, uh, it's a little bit of a matrix pastiche. Um, somebody is thinking about uh, adding a couch to their living room. They want to shop. So they, you know, they put on one of these headsets and instantly we're in that like Neo white space where uh, instead of like racks of guns, you know, swishing by at, at lightning speed, uh, it's it's rows and rows of couches. Um, and uh, and then they're you know they're able to use natural language. You, you watch through the video as they uh, just say out loud, uh, you know, 
leather, black, uh, and then you know those are those those inputs, those linguistic inputs are taken as sort of filters over the set. Um, and you see objects being removed and the set being reduced to a set of leather black couches. Um, gesture is used to sort of you know move across that space without actually you know locomoting in real life. Um, and then of course you can uh, sort of grab any one of those couches and immediately have the environment, the sort of white neo environment, vanish around you while that couch remains now seated immediately in your living room. And so you've sort of transported this virtual couch from your search space into your real world space. And that bridging that context between the world of like virtual reality, you know, as, as much as that is, uh, and as interesting as that can be and all the possibilities there, um, but rooting it in, in sort of the real world and, uh, and, and how that ultimately informs the purchase decision um, was sort of the, the idea of the journey there. Um, and today, you know, when we want to search for a couch, we walk over to our laptop, we open it up, we wake it up, we go to the website, we type in the search field and we have a little square of pictures in front of us. And that's how we do that today. Um, and, and so the, really the question is like, you know, with spatial computing, can that just be a, a lot better? You know, can you get a realistic 3d representation of this many couches right in front of you instantly feel like you can almost touch each one, like you get a sense for the materiality of each. And then of course, being able to bridge that into your own space and see it in real dimension, see it reflect, you know, the lighting conditions and everything else in your room where it actually feels situated and real. And I'll tell you, um, I, I do feel really lucky to have gone to, to Apple earlier um, to try the Vision Pro um, because the, the quality of display in these devices is absolutely unparalleled. And there is no question in my mind that this device finally crosses that threshold where when you put 3D content into your environment, it looks absolutely real. If you have a good model, it looks absolutely real. And so I think that is a very powerful threshold for us to be crossing at this moment. And so for these sort of more immersive search experiences, I think I think people will have a renewed sense of how powerful they, they can be when they feel that real. That's really exciting. In in this specific case that we're talking about, could you talk a little bit more about the some of the implementation details? And by this, I mean that your post talks a bit about using the MetaVoice SDK and LLMs. Can you talk a bit about how that all comes together in order to create exper- an experience like this? Totally. Um, so this video in particular um, is a concept video. Uh, with each concept video that we put together, we look at relevant um, technologies in the field that would obviously be critical to, to create that concept, right? We, we don't create concepts just out of thin air. We say, hey, what are the trends we're seeing? What are the underlying technologies? When do we think these are going to kind of intersect and what will be possible when they do, right? Um, and so we're sort of drawing the line out just a little bit further. Um, and so, you know, obviously for an experience like this, uh, you're going to need all those basic, like infinite search technologies of the web that do string matching and semantic search matching, um, because in a natural language interface, you want it to get to the point where the person doesn't have to think about their input. They just speak like they would to another person and that, and the interpreter on the other side, the LLM becomes the expert at saying, okay, I get what that means. And then going and fetching, right. Those results, translating it into computer search terms where, now we can go, uh, uh, review an index. Uh, so obviously, I think speech technologies and LLMs are, are incredibly powerful. I know we've been following things like Whisper um, and other voice input modalities very closely. That's a key one here. Um, but sure, surely enough, I'm sure the Vision Pro 
uh, and uh, and of course, Meta will continue to offer their own voice SDKs as well, um, which will likely improve rapidly over the coming year uh, year or two. Um, so one way or another, you need some kind of voice input. So we were looking at some of the fundamentals of what was in existence then. Um, things have progressed significantly since then. I mean, I think when we were building this at the time, um, there it wasn't. You didn't quite have real time um, voice uh, transcription, um, and now we do. Uh, and so these kinds of experiences are uh, are you know now even more um, powerful or, or possible than they were before. Um, the other piece is, is, of course, the LLM um, to interpret that. Uh, and then uh, one of the other things that we're really excited about is just how we represent 3D. And we haven't touched on this much yet. Um, but this is a significant area of interest for us, right? Because we think about the intersection of AI and spatial commerce. Um, spatial commerce on its own right is very interesting, but right, it's still very nascent, right? These devices are just starting to hit the threshold where people are like, Oh, that's very compelling, but it's also still very heavy and very expensive. Um, and also the tooling around building things for these devices is, is still in its early phases. And so it's a little slow, et cetera. Um, that will speed up uh, and the devices will obviously get lighter and cheaper. Uh, so that will take care of itself. Um, but the actual 3D piece is one that we um, I've personally seen uh, over and over in, in sort of my career in the spatial computing fields, first starting Primer. Um, which was an interior design um, visualization marketplace usually using mobile AR to help people visualize tile and wallpaper and paint um, in their space uh, using, you know, really rich materials that we created in-house, um, you know, using physically based rendering uh, so that, uh, you know, if, uh, if you, you had a tile that had a shiny surface on it, you could actually see the real light in your space reflected off the surface. Um, and that kind of stuff is really powerful for informing how and what people buy. Um, but the 3D model challenge uh, was one of the first things we ran into. Like merchants have so much to manage uh, and entrepreneurs have so much to manage in building their business um, that, that keeping good track of like image resources uh, and assets uh, used for their website four years ago, um, much less like 3D models and how to make and prepare those or what a good 3D model looks like or who to go to to get one. Um, those are open questions that a lot of merchants still kind of don't really know the answer to. Um, and so we've seen a, a huge hurdle for merchants in just getting over that first step of getting their product modeled in 3D in a way that it can be used for spatial commerce or spatial computing experiences. And so we've been really excited about technologies uh, that afford new kinds of capture, like Gaussian splats. Um, you know, this is one of those things that's at the perfect intersection between AI and spatial commerce. Um, until merchants have an easier way to turn their products into a 3D media object, like we're not going to make that much progress. And so we're really excited about things like Gaussian splats as a, as a way to afford merchants um, a fast path um, to just sort of like scanning or walking around their product to generate a really high quality 3D volumetric image of that object to be, to be utilized in whatever 3D experience they might want to create downstream of that. Um, and I think that's a big, uh, a big piece that we've seen over the last year too is, is a significant maturing, um, both in terms of rendering quality for 3D models in the browser um, obviously, a huge part of what Shopify does is enable merchants to build incredible web storefronts. Um, so making sure that we have a stack that works for spatial commerce in the web is vital to us. 
um, and with WebGL um, and with a number of other um, sort of accelerating factors on the web graphics front, uh, we have incredible visualization capabilities for for real-time 3D in the browser now. Um, but it it still has been hard for merchants to create models. And I think that's why we also get really excited about Gaussian splats um, and other kinds of scanning technologies uh, at Shopify. We actually shipped uh, just last year a, prod- a 3D product scanner um, into the Shopify mobile app um, where you can walk around your product uh, and sort of take a, a video um, uh, by looping around your product. And then that turns it into a photogrammatic 3D model. Um, so a slightly different pipeline than, the, than Gaussian splatting. Um, so it creates a more traditional mesh and texture model, uh, but very powerful still for many, many merchants. I want to use a different project of yours to maybe get at this immersive web idea from a kind of different angle. And I think this one actually maybe illustrates a couple of the unique challenges that come about. So I guess repeating your own context back to you, there was this inspiration you had of Johnny Lee's Wii Remote Hack in 2007 to create VR displays. And this VR display, it looked really exciting. It sounded like everybody loved it, but it never got used by anybody. And so you developed this project, Wonka Vision, which I'll, I'll let you explain the name, kind of inspired by Johnny Lee. But you asked and answered this question about what's what's difficult about this? Why did people not adopt this? And I think this kind of illustrates maybe a few challenges for creating immersive web experiences. I'm wondering if you could talk me through that project and how it illustrates some of the remaining challenges here. Yeah, totally. Um... So to give people some context on on Wonka Vision and sort of where this came from, you know, we were thinking about, and we were seeing a few examples of this. Like this is a trick that is um, used often in in hype videos around AR, et cetera. Um, But, you know, we got sort of down a little rabbit hole about it and got kind of fascinated with it. Um, Thinking about, you know, back in the day, um, Johnny Lee, um, sort of a, a hacker style engineer, um, took a Wii remote um, and like taped it to the top of his TV and then sort of like walked around with the um, with the receiver bar uh, and and managed to make the image on his TV screen uh, mirror his perspective such that it looked like there was an interior volume in his TV with projections like coming out of it and things floating in that 3D volume and everything looked perspectively perfect as he sort of moved his you know, his viewing angle um, from side to side across that TV. And it was a wonderful illusion, um, got everybody super excited. And, and I think ultimately was the stuff that led to more of the Connect work uh, actually coming to fruition. Um, it was a lot of the early IR sort of detection and, and stuff like that. Um, and so uh, And so we just asked the question like, well, all of our monitors, including our laptop monitors, our desktop monitors, like, pretty much all have webcams on them, strapped to them now. We have these powerful computer vision algorithms that can segment the webcam image, figure out where my face and eyeballs are. Um, So we have all the technical tools, at least roughly speaking, that we need to do that live sort of window pane tracking for, for at least one viewer. Um, And so why can't we use our desktop monitors as if they were 
depthable 3D addressable spaces um, if we can have this sort of live updating as your perspective shifts, right? Um, and uh, and the, the answer is like, yes, we can absolutely do this. There's a couple of tricky things to figure out with each webcam. You have to figure out the lens intrinsics of, you know, the one on your monitor versus the one on your, your laptop, et cetera. Um, but once you control for that, if you can get that information, um, then you can actually get a, a pretty decent um, perspective uh, illusion happening on your monitor. Of course, it breaks apart the second you have to track two people or two people have to look at that monitor. It only works from one vantage point. Um, uh, but these, you know, these are fun experiments into uh, that, that ultimately lead to either learnings or deeper insights that kind of take us other directions. Um, so, uh, so a lot of fun to do and, and obviously fun to show off, um, but more fun to sort of educate people on sort of what this effect is and kind of how it works and, um, and some more of the tools that are out there kind of laying around for people to play with. Yeah, definitely. I think a good place for us to, to close out here is in addition to the projects we just talked about, you've done others that are also more obviously relevant to spatial commerce. One of them was, what if your room had a reset button? And this is sort of the case where things that are actually in your room, if you want to do furniture shopping and augmented reality, will get in the way of a good AR preview of all of this. And you have a lot of other things besides, but having having done all of these different projects that are sort of answering questions, informing people, exploring the future of spatial commerce in different ways, what directions are you most excited to pursue with your group right now? And what do you think are, are kind of the most promising vectors for different products kind of going forward based off of that work? Yeah, I mean, I think the things we've covered a lot of them today. I mean, I think um, AI as a tool um, for media creation um, and personalization is incredibly powerful, right? Like thinking about the personal try-on opportunities um, with image generation, with video generation, uh, with 3D generation. Um, so that's, I think that's one area is just that like the whole sphere of media generation and personalization is just going to be incredibly powerful for commerce. Um, another big one is, is uh, we touched on a little bit, of course, is, is 3D um, and how uh, we give merchants tools uh, to capture their products or bring their products into the spatial medium and what tools we're providing there to help them create incredible, you know, shopping experiences for their users utilizing that, that new kind of media. And I actually think the, the other area that I get just really excited about in general is just um, continuing to help uh, define um, and create uh, the future of commerce for um, spatial computing and thinking about, you know, as Shopify, as a platform, um, it's our responsibility to help our entrepreneurs, the people who run on Shopify, make the leap into this new generation of computing and capability. Um, and so it, it feels like a real privilege to be working with like an incredible group of people um, uh, on this problem and thinking about what are the fundamentals of that future for how we buy things um, and how we uh do all of this, you know, more efficiently, whether it's on the shopper side, finding what I'm after faster and more intelligently, or whether it's the merchant trying to figure out just like how to run their business more efficiently um, and effectively. And so I think uh, AI is going to have a, a tremendous impact on, on both of those things. That's a really exciting vision. And I think a, a good place for us to close. So Russ, I, I really appreciate your work. I think you've been doing some really exciting things. And I want to thank you for taking the time to share all this with me today. 
I really appreciate it, Daniel. Thanks for the opportunity to come on. That's all I have for today. Thanks so much for listening to the episode. And if you like this, really the best thing you can do is to leave me a review and to share this episode with someone who might find it interesting. You can also subscribe to the podcast in your favorite podcast player. And if you want to keep up to date with the latest from The Gradient to receive emails whenever we have new podcasts, newsletters, articles, then you can subscribe to us on Substack where you'll get email notifications for everything.